Well, no doubt what we know as the Ten Commandments is one of the most familiar passages in Scripture. Those commandments contain timeless ethical demands by God. Even believers have heard of the Ten Commandments and know something about them. But though we are familiar with the Ten Commandments, I suspect that we are not as good at identifying what some have called the 11th commandment. It was given to us by Jesus himself in John chapter 13, verse 34, on the night before his crucifixion, speaking to his disciples, John 13, he said this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. So there it is, what some call the 11th commandment. And to emphasize further just how important this commandment is, that night Jesus went on to say this to his disciples, the very next verse, verse 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, obedience to this command is a significant way that we express our identity in this world and to this world. Now, the Apostle Paul expounds on this so-called 11th commandment in our passage today. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Now, just as a quick review of chapter 4 in this chapter, we have already seen Paul challenging this church in Thessalonica, a good church challenging them to excel still more in their Christian lives. That's in verse 1 of chapter 4. And in verses 3 through 8, that urging to excel still more led to a reminder to them that God's will for all of His people is to grow in Christ-likeness, to grow in holiness, which includes avoiding all forms of sexual immorality, verses 3 to 8. Now in verses 9 to 12, we find another important reminder. This one has to do with what the Lord told His disciples, that we are to love one another, that we are to love all others who love Him. Now, this kind of love is referred to in our passage today and elsewhere as brotherly love or love of the brethren. Just so you'll know, in the Greek, that term is Philadelphia. And yes, that is where we get the name of the city here in the United States, Philadelphia, meaning the city of love. It's from this Greek term. Now, in secular speech, that term was used to describe the kind of love you would have within your family, the earthly family, the kind of love you have for blood relatives, we could say. The term doesn't actually appear very often in the New Testament, but when it does, it always is used to describe the relationship between those who share a common love for Christ, who share a common faith in Christ. It describes, in other words, the close ties believers have with one another in another family within the church family. Here are some other examples besides our text today. Romans 12, verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love in Philadelphia. 
Hebrews 13.1, let Philadelphia, the love of the brethren, continue. So it is this Philadelphia that Paul now discusses, look at verse 9, now as to Philadelphia, the love of the brethren. Just so you'll know, that opening term, now as to, or you may have a translation that says now concerning, that is a frequent formula that Paul uses in his writings to introduce a new subject. We'll have it again in chapter 5. Chapter 5 begins that way, now as, or now concerning the times. You can see he changes topics there again. You see it many times in 1 Corinthians. Here are just a few, 1 Corinthians 7.1. Now, concerning the things about which you wrote. Chapter 8, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians. Now, concerning the things to idols, he changed subjects. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts and so on. Now in Corinthians, Paul uses that formula to change subjects to indicate that he's now providing an answer to questions that that church had sent to him in a letter. But here in Thessalonians, Paul is responding to different elements of an oral report that was given to him by Timothy. Paul had to vacate Thessalonica, ended up in Corinth. Somewhere along the way, he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to check on the believers there. Timothy then joined, rejoined Paul in Corinth and gave him a report. Look back at chapter 3, verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, he's brought us good news of your faith and love. So now we have the apostle commending the members of his congregation, of this congregation for this, but also wanting to say something to them about it. We've actually seen in our study of 1 Thessalonians along the way, Paul commending the congregation several times for their mutual love. It's back in chapter 1, verse 3. We constantly bear in mind your work of faith and labor of love. Already read 3 Chapter 3, verse 6 to you, Timothy report. But 2 Thessalonians, the next letter, chapter 1, verse 3, the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. So like some other topics, Paul commends this church periodically for this brotherly love, the love for one another in the church family, just like he did on some other topics. He knows that they understand this love. He knows they're living it out at some level. So why is the apostle now writing to them about this topic? Well, apparently, regardless of their good reputation, certain tensions existed within that church, that Christian community. Just like we saw back in verses 3 to 8. There, we came to understand that someone or some members of the church had engaged in sexual immorality. So also in this category, there was something lacking. It's not to say that there was evidence of of grave division among the members like in Corinth. There was great division in that church, but nevertheless, it does appear that there were some concerns still in the apostles' mind about this topic there in Thessalonica, the area of brotherly love. Yet it's a good church. How could that happen in a good church? Well, we can speculate about some reasons for that. 
The ones who came to Christ there in Thessalonica would experience the same thing that people experience in other cities in a pagan world when they came to Christ. Their own family members who did not embrace the gospel might reject them as family members. There was occasions when their own earthly family members would persecute them because of their new faith in Christ. So when they experienced things like that, this new family, the church, assumed the function of a family in their lives. But that new family was a mix of all kinds of people. There were both slaves and free men in the church, slaves and masters, in the same church family. There were Greeks, Romans, Macedonians, Jews, uh, what the Bible calls also barbarians, all gathering to worship together, all sharing the same Lord's table together. In the culture, men and women didn't have equal status, but they do in the church. Citizens and foreigners didn't have equal status in the culture, but they did in the church. So in many ways, in this community, common social boundaries were crossed because of what they shared, their common salvation. And Paul makes that clear that that's the way it is in the church. He says it in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Well, in any case, for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to address this issue. And in what he wrote, we're going to identify together this morning three dimensions of this thing called Philadelphia, brotherly love. And here's the first one. Number one, the natural expectation of love, the natural expectation of love. Verse 9 continues, you have no need for anyone to write you. Now, we've pointed out in past sermons that the apostles had taught the Thessalonians on many topics. Paul, Silas, Timothy had gone there on a missionary journey. They had preached the gospel. Many had come to Christ. They planted a church. They stayed for a while and continued to disciple them and teach them theology and doctrine. And what they taught included this topic, what it means to love others in the body of Christ. But he points out something even more significant than the fact that the missionaries had taught them on this. Look at verse 9 again. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Now, here's an interesting change in the term for love. Brotherly love, now as to love of the brethren, that's Philadelphia. But now he says, this love takes on the characteristic of agape. That's the other term for love here now in verse 9. You're taught by God to agapao one another, agape love. That's a love that is volitionally driven. It's not a love motivated by something, super fat, something superficial like appearance. It's not, not an emotional attraction alone. It's not some sort of sentimental relationship. So this verse says that God had taught them to agapao, love, one another in the body. Now that verb taught by God is a very rare term. It's not found anywhere else in biblical literature. But when Paul uses it, he's not referring to some maybe Old Testament passage that teaches love, though there are some. 
He's not referring to something Jesus said about love, which we've already talked about this morning. He's not even talking about what the missionaries had done when they were there to teach them. This is describing what the Holy Spirit does in the soul of every true believer. Brotherly love is one aspect of the fruit of the new birth, regeneration. God takes somebody who's spiritually dead and by His Spirit makes them spiritually alive. And as a result of that, they're going to express faith in Christ. But something else goes along with that. Listen to Romans 5 verse 5. The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. No wonder it's mentioned as a fruit of the Spirit. The very first one, Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Therefore, since our faith in Christ brings us into this family, the family of God, we therefore naturally feel brotherly love for one another. It's a work that the Spirit did in our heart. He put it there. In fact, this love is so closely tied to regeneration that the Bible makes it a test, one of the tests of true faith. Listen to 1 John 4, 7 and 8. 1 John 4, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God for God is love. Notice in our verse, though, that he wrote it in the present tense. He didn't say we've, we have been taught by God, though that's true. The doctrine of regeneration, it happens at the moment of our conversion, our being born again. We are taught by God. It is an ongoing work, even, of the Spirit to prompt brotherly love in our hearts, to prompt, to stir up, to teach us about loving others who love the same Christ that we love. Like I said, the Thessalonians, they knew something about this. I mean, at one level, they had a good track record of this brotherly love. Look at verse 10. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. We've noted in the past that Thessalonica was an important city. It was a a leading city of a very highly populated region of that area, Macedonia. Therefore, the Christians there, they would have frequent contact with people coming in and out. They would have frequent contact with traveling merchants, farmers, traders. And we know that they took advantage of those opportunities to proclaim the gospel. And people came to Christ that had visited that city. But then they left. And as the gospel advanced, Groups of believers sprang up in other parts of the province. So what Paul is saying here, you have a track record of actually then helping those churches, helping those believers, meeting their needs, providing food, providing money, and so forth. So they did know that this kind of love is what believers naturally do show to other believers. But as exemplary as the Thessalonians had been, Once again, further progress was still possible. So he says in verse 10, But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. That should sound familiar. It's the same thing we saw back in verse 1. The call is the same as that in verse 1. 
There, the apostle urged them to excel still more, to abound in conduct, any kind of conduct that would please God. So now, in the same way as he changes topics here, they were exhorted to abound even more in their love for one another. Peter said the same thing. Here's what he challenges us to do in 1 Peter 1, verse 22. He doesn't just say love one another. Listen to how he expands on it. 1 Peter 1, 22. Fervently love one another from the heart. The point is that there is always more of this Philadelphia, this brotherly love, that it gets expressed more literally in agape love for us to embrace, for us to learn, for us to share. And we should because it's the natural expectation of all who have been born again. This love has been shed abroad in our hearts, loving God and then loving others. There's a second dimension here, the practical expression of love, the practical expression of love. Before we dig into this point, I do need to tell you something important about that culture of that time. There was something in that culture that led to a problem, a problem that included idleness in people's lives, even Christians, some Christians, idleness, a lack of responsibility. A couple of factors, actually. One was, in that era of history, people who had money, people of means, would at times adopt others, so to speak. They would become what was called patrons, and a patron was someone who gave money to others who had financial need. That all sounds like a nice thing to do. Those patrons could be unbelievers. They might be people in the church. That in return, the one receiving help would promise, in a sense, to spread the good word in the community about that patron. In other words, it would enhance the patron's image in the community to give money out to people like that. And if the patron was involved in politics, which was true sometimes, that beneficiary would promise then to support that person, vote for that person. So it was possible that some in the church had come to readily accept support from a patron. That would have been common in their culture. And the result was these people, though, becoming dependent on that institution of patronage. And as a result of that, they would choose then not to work, or at least they would become lazy. And once that happened, they would even become meddlesome due to having so much extra time. That was one thing going on in their culture. But there was one more issue possibly that existed that could have contributed to an emerging problem that was happening in this church, the problem in some people's lives of idleness and a lack of industry. This church, as we know, thought a lot about eschatology, the Lord's return. So Paul addresses that issue in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. Some in that church evidently were tempted to think wrongly, though, about eschatology. They were eagerly waiting the day of the Lord. In fact, they had come to believe that it was at hand. Some did. So the temptation was to say something like this. Well, if Jesus is coming back soon, then why work? That way of thinking, of course, is a total misapplication of the truth about the Lord's return. Christians are to 
certainly look forward to the Lord's return. Our hope is a future hope, but in the meantime, we're to carry on with our everyday lives and our responsibilities until He returns. Along those lines, I was reading something this week that Martin Luther supposedly made this remark about that, that if he knew that the world would end tomorrow, he said, then will today, I'll plant a tree. Why? It represented something. He meant that an awareness of the Lord's return should not cause us to neglect the world and our our duties in it, but should actually cause us to go on serving and to cheerfully serve in all the various callings of our lives. Well, Paul doesn't directly say any of this in our passage. We don't know for certain the reason for the idleness. There's two possibilities there. What we do know is that it existed in this church, and we do know that the situation grew worse. Listen to what he says in the second letter to them, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 11. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now, the Greek term behind busybodies means disorderly. It means becoming lazy, irresponsible. So evidently, some in Thessalonica were not only dependent on some others for support, that was common, that institution of patronage, they were making themselves a nuisance to other people. So keep all that in mind as we go back to our text. We find Paul now amplifying his teaching on brotherly love that's expected of all believers by emphasizing three responsibilities that we have that go along with this. Three responsibilities. Here's the first responsibility. Under this heading of the practical expression of love, it's cultivating humble contentment. Now look at the conjunction and, the beginning of verse 11, that connects What's said now, there's three different phrases that we're going to look at in in verse 11 that connects those three to verse 10. In verse 10, at the end, we're being urged to excel still more. So connect all that. We're being urged to excel still more by putting into practice what these three phrases say to us. The first one being this, verse 11. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Make it your your ambition to lead a quiet life. That verb, make it your ambition, that means to strive. Strive eagerly. Put forth effort at something. And the striving is toward this, leading a quiet life. Now, if you just take the word itself, the idea of quietness and what it means even other places in Scripture, it means literally to be silent. You find it that way in the Gospels at times. One example is Luke 14, verse 4. It says they kept silent, same word. It's also a word that means to rest. It was used that way in Luke 23, 56. On the Sabbath they rested, same term. In our passage, though, there's a different nuance. Here it refers to being respectable in what you say and in what you do, which results in being seen by others as being a quiet person, someone who doesn't stir up problems. 
This is someone who's content. Someone who's at rest. And not always agitated. Not always going on a crusade about something. Not always on a campaign related to some issue. It's the same term that Peter used when he commended this to Christian wives in 1 Peter 3 verse 4. What did he commend to Christian wives to develop? 1 Peter 3 4, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, if you think about it, put all that together, there's a little bit of an oxymoron in thought here. Strive eagerly to lead a quiet life. It is possible. I mean, normally striving put means putting forth great effort. It's used that way in Scripture. Paul said in Romans 15, I strive, I aspire to preach the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, that verse I mentioned to you a lot, that's the, it's a great goal of our lives. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, I have as my ambition, it's the thing I strive for, to be pleasing to the Lord. Here he tells us to do that, be ambitious in the pursuit of quietness, contentment, to have this great ambition to lead a steady, sober life that does not call attention to itself. It's a good quality. It fosters brotherly love in the body. Now, to be sure, there's an important place for the other kind of striving and ambition. We're told in Titus 2.15 to be zealous for good deeds. But we can do all of this. We can do that, be zealous for good deeds at the same time while being content. We can be zealous to serve the Lord while at the same time to be at rest. We can strive to serve the Lord and at the same time strive to lead a quiet life that avoids making difficulties for other people and that avoids stirring up controversy. We are supposed to speak out about the Lord in this culture I'll be honest with you, I get a little personally sort of tired of hearing what appears as the grandstanding that some do. I'll step out of the pulpit just for a second. This is more my personal opinion here. The grandstanding sometime when actors are interviewed or sports stars are interviewed or politicians are interviewed who are Christians and and just want to force somehow the gospel in the answer when it wasn't really the moment. You hear it sometimes, you know, interviewing a sports star. What was the key to the team being able to come from so far behind and win tonight? What was the key? Well, I just want to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for helping us have this victory. Make it look like, well, that's, that's what the blessing of the Lord always looks like. It's winning games. You know, that's, that's what it's all about. Well, do you think the offensive line played an important role at all? Well, listen, I just want to glorify God for his win that he gave us tonight. I always wonder about the Christians who are in the other team. I mean, they're still to be thankful to the Lord. Can't God get glory through losses as well? Yes. Again, don't get me wrong. I do believe we are to live with a sense of urgency. We're to proclaim the gospel while there's yet time, but there is a wisdom to it. There is a care to it. There is a maturity to it that's something different than what appears as grandstanding sometimes. To quote one writer, We are not to live lives of noisy, frenetic, 
evangelistic agitation. I like that. We're not to live lives of noisy, frenetic, evangelistic agitation. John MacArthur. Again, we're to speak out appropriately, and yet somehow the testimony of our lives is to be this, that we're at rest, we're tranquil, we're living reserved, tasteful lives, peaceful lives, even contented lives, lives that are free of conflict, free of hostility toward others. This is connected to something else, by the way, and that is churches and the family, the church family, the maintenance maintenance of unity in the body. This unity begins with the leadership. It's so important with elders and staff striving to maintain unity, and then that must spill over into the congregation. As we all know, the COVID era, as we tend to look back and call it now, the COVID era was a huge test of the ability of church leaders and congregations to make the decisions that would promote unity in the body. And by God's grace, we were able to do that. I'm so grateful. This is a practical expression of the brotherly love, cultivating humble contentment, as is this. Number two, respecting others' privacy. Respecting others' privacy. He says in verse 11, and attend to your own business. We have a more blunt way of saying that, right? Mind your own business. That's really what it is. This is a blunt way of telling someone to stop interfering in other people's affairs. Evidently, some in this young church were doing that. They were, they were quick to just point out the errors in other people's lives. We quoted Martin Luther earlier about planting a tree, if he knew it was his last day on earth. He also wrote harshly of these kind of people. Here's a quote from Martin Luther. These kind of people that don't respect other people's privacies, they think... I think we have that on a slide. You might put that up there. They think they must control everything and superintend and criticize what others do. These are malignant persons. They stir up nothing but mischief, for they do not use their talents in their calling or in the service of their neighbor. They use them only for their own glory and advantage. Advantage. So the point's clear. When it comes to assessing others, we should mind our own business. Listen, that fits with the teaching of Romans chapter 4, one of the most important chapters in the Bible, chapter 14, rather, on what we call the gray areas of life. All those issues the Bible doesn't say is directly that it's good or bad. It's left up to the conscience. There's many of them. Romans 14, verse 4, he says, Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. Now, in that chapter, in Rome, he was basically applying that a principle to the difference in the people there, some who would eat anything and some who would not eat certain foods, some who would, who would uh, proclaim a certain day as being holy and others who said all days were the same and so forth. But Paul was insisting that things like that are a matter for the individual's conscience, and there's many issues like that. But regardless of the subject matter, when it comes to the varying opinions that are possible and where obvious sin is not involved, Christians should know how and when to respect other people's thinking, respect their opinion, respect their privacy. Another good quote from Alexander McLaren. 
Nothing dries up sympathy and practical help more surely than a gossiping temper, which is perpetually buzzing about other people's concerns and knows everybody's circumstances and duties better than its own. Now, a balancing clarification. Paul's not giving us the excuse to just neglect other people who have legitimate needs. People suffer, there's afflictions, there's trials, and when that happens, our brothers' and sisters' concerns are our business. The same is true when a brother or sister is wandering from the faith and falling into to flagrant sin, how the Bible calls sin. We're, we're told this in Hebrews 3.13, encourage one another day after day so that none of you are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's the responsibility we have to encourage one another. But except for that biblical body life, our exhortation here implies that a meddlesome spirit that often goes along with that lack of contentment and a restlessness will be trouble in a congregation. And so the antidote for that kind of undisciplined behavior, here it says, is stay out of other people's business and seek to live a quiet, unobtrusive life. This third responsibility supports the implication that there was, there was this unhealthy idleness going on in the congregation. This is another practical expression that is pursuing honest labor. Now, he says in verse 11, and the third phrase, work with your hands. Now, more specifically, it is manual labor that that phrase refers to. Manual labor. Paul references that here because most of the members in that church were laborers, artisans, even slaves. The intent is not to glorify manual labor over some other form of work. It's just that since many of the converts were part of the working class, he wanted to affirm the importance and dignity of what they did. He wanted to inform, to affirm the dignity of all honest labor, including work that some considered menial. So Paul was calling on those who were not working, just depending on others for support all the time to get back to work, get back to pursuing employment. Yes. Scripture promotes benevolence toward those who are in need. What it does not promote is unnecessary dependency. Listen to what he says in 1 Timothy 5.8. If anyone does not provide for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In the next letter, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10, you can glance over to that, 2 Thessalonians 3, 10. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. I dealt with someone like that in California one time. We took walk-ons, people looking for money and food and spiritual counsel and different things, and we all took turns in that at various times. And I had this young guy, he was bigger than me, had on army fatigues, and, and he was asking for food. And uh, you probe a little bit, and he was saying that his support check from the government, you know, wasn't, wasn't in yet. It was a little late, needs some food to tide him over. Well, what's the, what's the deal? And he says, you know, I mean, employers and I, we just don't get along. So I'm drawing unemployment. And uh, two things went through my mind. This verse that I just read, if anyone's not willing to work, then he is not to eat. That was one thing. And the second thing was 
how fast I was going to be able to run after I told him that because <laughs> he's bigger than me with army fatigues, okay? He's a former soldier. And I told him, I said, well, I got to be honest with you. I, I can't give you any food. I'd be sinning if I did that. Boy, he got right in my face. I mean, right down in my face, like this was going to be my last moment. And I said, the Bible says this. He forced it again. You're not going to give me any food? No, I, I can't do that. Literally, security at the church there had to uh, watch out for me for a couple of weeks after that. Listen, what we have in our verse is actually a Christian view of work then. Now, work is given dignity in the creation mandate and what we find in Genesis 1 and 2. It's dignified, but elsewhere in Scripture, the Bible endorses the nobility of all honest labor of all kinds. So since work is dignified in God's eyes, it pleases Him, we should persevere in working hard at our jobs. These are practical expressions of love even in the church family. And he ends verse 11 with this, just as we commanded you, and that means all three of those. Cultivate humble contentment, respect others' privacy, pursue honest labor just as we commanded you. And then lastly, the last dimension, when it comes to brotherly love, it's the missional effect of love. The missional effect of love. Living out the practical expressions of brotherly love has an evangelistic potential result, verse 12, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders. Unbelievers are outsiders. They're outside the family of God, and that's because they have no connection with Christ. Colossians 4, verse 5, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. One of the qualifications of an elder, 1 Timothy 3, 7, an elder must have a good reputation with those outside the church. That good reputation in verse 12 is called behaving properly. That means to conduct ourselves decently, respectfully among unbelievers. So the point is that when we eliminate what Paul was concerned about here, when we eliminate the restlessness and the lack of contentment and the meddlesomeness and the idleness, even outsiders will recognize that conduct as being praiseworthy. That's attractive. If there is condemnation from unbelievers, it should be over our doctrine and our faith, not our conduct. Now, we're putting two long passages up on the screen there just so I can read them. 1 Peter 2, verses 12 to 15 is one. Listen to what it says here and how it connects with what we've heard today. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words... They're, they can't really find anything legitimate to pin on you. They're going to have to make up something to criticize you for because your behavior is stellar. It goes on, same context. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Our testimony is involved. Another passage, Titus 2, verses 4 to 10. 
Encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. Why? So that the word of God will not be dishonored. Testimony. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. Why? So that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Why? so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. We put on our faith, in a sense, in clothing. Let's put it in practical terms. Christians ought to be regarded as the most excellent members of society because our conduct is a key element of our testimony. But for Christians to be troublemakers, meddlesome, Lazy, it only disgraces the gospel that we're trying to proclaim to the world. Again, they make it even more practical. That's why Christians who own businesses should make it a point of providing the best kind of services, the highest quality of goods, and treating customers the the best way, treating customers with honesty and care for the sake of testimony. Christians ought to be good citizens. We ought to be the best neighbors, good employees, good employers, good parents, relatives, so that unbelievers look at the way Christians work and they look at the way they live and they go away respecting them even when they disagree with us. This is a purpose underlying these exhortations this morning. It's evangelism. It's missions. And closely associated with the importance of a good testimony is the need to avoid unnecessary dependency again. Verse 12 ends, and not be in any need. Literally means be dependent on no one. Again, that exhortation doesn't apply to those who are unable to work because of illness or injury or honest unemployment. We're to provide for people in legitimate need, but still Christians ought to do their best not to burden the church, not to burden others, so that they can actually be in a place where they're contributing to those who have legitimate needs. It's put here because that too is a testimony to the world. So these are the dimensions of brotherly love. It's expected of us. It's poured out in our hearts the moment of regeneration. It's natural to love others who love Christ if we love Christ. We've got to put it into practice in practical ways. These are three very important ways. And we do all this keeping in mind as part of our testimony to the world. You know, really, this is a good church. What Paul is trying to see them become. A good church is a body of Christians that are filled with love for Christ, but they're filled with love for one another. So some final implications. Here's one the significance of the church. Couldn't help but think of that. Since love of other believers is evidence of salvation, since love of other believers is evidence of being taught by God, the desire to regularly gather with other Christians as a church family is therefore also part of the evidence that someone is a believer. 
and I'll put it negatively, neglect of church or a decrease in prioritizing involvement at the very least brings into question a person's profession of faith because it begs the question of whether or not they've been taught by God. Another implication that leads into this, and that's the need for the church. We need the church family. Heard it expressed this morning, even. I can tell you this, our need for the church family is going to increase as the world gets worse and worse. Therefore, some counsel, free counsel. If you're facing a possible move due to an employment opportunity or for some other reason, it only makes sense that you make the decision about a particular location also on whether or not there will be a strong Bible-believing church there for you and your family in that new place. And people tell me that when they move here. I'm so encouraged when I hear it that one of the reasons we came here as opposed to somebody else is because of this church. I'm also encouraged when someone's contemplating a move away and and they come asking us for help. I mean, can you help us identify a good church there? Otherwise, we're not going to move there. It's discouraging when you run across people who don't care about that. Listen, for true believers, there should never be any thinking that it just doesn't matter where we live. It does matter. If there's no solid church, then you must be going there with the purpose of planting one, evidently. But if there's no solid church, I'm going to tell you, life's going to get much more difficult for you. And I've seen it over and over, especially as the times get worse. At the very least, there's no place in Christian thinking for a desire to escape from people. Now, on the practical human side, I get the desire for that. Okay, I understand that. We're together regularly with other Christians because the church is our family. Lastly, it's the truth about every church. Don't forget one of the lessons we learned from the church at Thessalonica. You can be a good church and not be perfect. We've seen it along the way, Paul calling attention to the fact from the very beginning that this church was genuine, they were evangelistic, they were solid in many ways, they were a model church in their region, and yet they still faced challenges, they still had weaknesses, they still needed to excel still more in various ways, and that is the reality of all churches, even good ones. So yes, we can be classified as a good church, but that doesn't mean we're perfect. I do wish sometimes when people leave over some non-doctrinal thing that they just don't like, that they would learn how to think that way. Good churches are not necessarily perfect. I will tell you this, if you've never come to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are actually not in the church family, even if you attend here or some other church. You're not actually in the family. That happens only one way, through faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sin. He joins you to the church family, his family. If you have, then one of the things we actually celebrate in the Lord's table is this, the one body of the church. 
The Lord formed it through his life and death and resurrection. So let's think about that today as we celebrate the Lord's table. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this urging that we need to excel still more in this area. There's always more grace of love that we can learn and express in this body. Thank you for your forgiveness in the many ways we fail and we drop the ball sometimes. But Lord, it is the heart desire of this church to live this out. So thank you for that. Help us do it. Help us grow. I pray for anyone here who doesn't know Christ, help them understand why they're not really in the family because they don't know the Savior. Open their hearts to believe. Help us to remember even as we celebrate the table, not only what you did to pay for our sin, but what you did to form this family that we're part of. In Christ's name, amen.